We are going to take a look finally at the book of Ruth. Yay. Would you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ruth, please? How many of you guys did the homework this week and read Ruth through? Okay, good. So how many of you have now read Ruth three times in anticipation of, <laughs> of today's message? Good. Well, today I'm going to start by just diving in. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Eli Melech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Eli Melech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malan and Kilian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not. Re we will. Pause. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and also more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That's Ruth chapter 1. There's lots to talk about 
in there. I've given you a little introduction to the book of Ruth and uh, just reminding you that our lens, our perspective is we're looking for a king. We're looking for a king. This is uh, part four of a sermon series called They Asked for a King. And um, <clears throat> the subtitle is Ruth chapter one. Uh, Greg, if you're putting it in the, in the notes there. Uh, we are looking for the expectation, the growing expectation of Messiah. And we're looking at how God has revealed his promise, the promised one. And, uh, and this book is pivotal. It's elemental, I think, in the description, the understanding of the messianic expectation that Israel was beginning to have and that you and I have adopted. And uh, Jesus, of course, is our Messiah, but getting to Jesus is a little bit of a journey. So we're kind of taking a look into the Old Testament for this reason. We want to see how we got to Jesus. And this is a, one of those important stories. The book of Ruth has uh, some, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's such a short book, you would think it would be easy to write a commentary on it. But there are myriads of commentaries written on the book of Ruth, which, uh, which I, I've gotten into the habit of reading. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm finding every commentary on the book of Ruth that I can find and just reading through it and seeing people's different perspectives on, on this book is actually marvelous, really insightful. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that is important to note is that scholars seem to be nowadays trending towards the idea that Ruth was written in the earlier, uh, earlier times than what they may have thought later. Uh, they think that Ruth may actually have been written during the reign of King David, or perhaps in the reign of Solomon, but, uh, but certainly in the reign of King David. And um, there's plenty of scholarship that uh, suggests otherwise, but, but the scholarship is starting to, it seems, shift in this, in this direction. Uh, why is that important? Well, because the book of Ruth tells a story about the family, ultimately, of David. And it, it promotes the idea that the king whose, whose kingdom should unite all of Israel, David, uh, is to be chosen. Uh, that, that family story is a beautiful story that is kind of it's, it's woven into the tapestry of Israelite expectation. And it's a beautiful story. And, and uh, on account of that, some think that the, that the book of Ruth is actually written as a political piece to um, gain some momentum for the united kingdom under the family of David. If that is in fact the case, that's not uh, surreptitious. It's not, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's something that we should turn our nose up at. I, I think what it does is it kind of, uh, it reinforces the idea that the book of Ruth gives us an expectation of, of a, uh, well, a time when things will be beautiful, when redemption will come, when there will be righteousness on the face of the earth, where, where those who have been robbed, grieved, abandoned, those who are poor will be restored again through miraculous intervention of God. Last week I talked about how God miraculously intervenes in the story, but you don't see God, you don't see his hand, you see people doing beautiful things. And, uh, and this, this is an important theme for you to gain, uh, to, to, to hold on to, that God works in our lives also through people. Uh, that many times we're looking for miraculous intervention, but miraculous intervention uh, doesn't seem to come. Well, actually, it does. It does. It's just God uses people 
to do his work. And God, therefore, uses you and he uses me. And this is something we talked about last week. I got kind of excited about it. But going on to, the, uh, to this first chapter of Ruth, there are some elements of the story that are important for us to note. First of all, in the first paragraph, we have a condensed version of a terrible tragedy, wouldn't you say? Those first uh, five verses, or uh, yeah, first five verses tell us a lot, of, a lot of detail and they also leave out a lot of detail. One of the things that they definitely leave out is why Elimelech and his two sons died. That's not there. And, uh, and that's important to note because uh, God doesn't want you to get hung up on that. Do you know that um, bad things happen to pretty much everybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course you knew that. But do you know that bad things do not always happen to us because we deserve them? Actually, um, maybe we do deserve everything that bad that happens to us. But it seems like that would be a terrible theological thing to land on, to say that everything bad that happens is because of God's punishment of your life. I've heard, I've read, I've listen to sermons, commentaries, people who try to find a reason why Eli Melech and his sons died by saying, for example, they left Israel and they went to Moab. For those of you who don't know and understand the geography, let me give you a little, just a little snippet. It's important that you understand Israel was a nation that had been created out of a uh, out of the family of one man, Abraham, and they had been uh, they had been protected within the borders of Egypt uh, on account of uh, one of the sons of Jacob, uh, Joseph, who, who rose to prominence in, in, in Egypt, and the children of Israel were protected within that, that, that context. And for 400 years, as their role changed from being welcomed and respected guests of Egypt to becoming slaves of Egypt, they grew mighty in number, vast in number, and, uh, and they were the... Um, they were the object of, of much cruelty, and, uh, and God delivered them. He heard their cry, and he delivered them through Moses, and they became the first nation to ever emerge out of another nation, just given birth through the Red Sea, as it were, uh, God bringing them through dry land and doing mighty miracles and delivering them from their slavery. Israel then made a wilderness trek. And it should have taken 12 days and it took 40 years to traverse the wilderness and to listen to God and ultimately get to the borders of the promised land on their way through. As they were coming to the borders of the promised land where the Jordan River is, they had to go through two nations, two kingdoms that uh, attacked them. One of them was Ammon and the other one was Moab. And the Moabites attacked Israel with the intention of destroying them. They were protecting their own property, so I suppose from a political standpoint, you might consider that they had, uh, they had some right to that. But they could have let them through their land by just saying, sure, come on through, and you can pay for the water, you can pay for the grass, and, but just you know, keep on going. But no, they attacked, and so God gave liberty to the Israelites to attack Moab and fight back, and they destroyed Moab and Ammon. And Moab, the Moabites became a cursed people. And uh, they had tried to curse Israel. They hired uh, a magus, um, a man by the name of Balaam, a false prophet. And uh, he, he actually had connection with God. He talked to God. You can read his story in the book of Numbers. 
and he talked to God and God spoke to him, but he didn't always listen to God. And um, and anyway, uh, the kings of Moab uh, and the they they called upon these guys to to curse Israel. And um, when uh, when Balaam refused to curse them and instead blessed them, uh, they uh, they tried to find another way to pervert uh, God's will to just move, shift God's will away from the Israelites and make them curse before God. And so they, they had their women seduce the Israelite men. And as a result, uh, many, uh, many people were caught up in that seduction and ultimately died. So God made a prohibition and told Israel they weren't allowed to, they weren't allowed to have relationship with the Moabites. They were to destroy them, and they were never to uh, protect them, and they weren't to marry their women, and they weren't to take on their gods, the chief of the gods of the Moabites being Shemosh or Chemosh, and um, uh, they sacrificed their children to this, this idol. And, um, and so God did not like the Moabites, and uh, there were prohibitions against marrying Moabites. Well... If you can imagine David as king, uh, for those of you who can just jump forward a few, a few generations, David is being established as king of Israel in place of Saul. Saul has died on the battlefield and his son Jonathan also. And ultimately his son Ishbosheth takes the kingdom. And for a period of time, the kingdom is divided. Judah uh, sides with David and the rest of the tribe side with Ishbosheth. And, uh, and David is rejected by most of Israel, probably because of his Moabite heritage, because his great-grandmother was a Moabitess. And so it's kind of like the uh, proverbial uh, um, birth certificate. Can we see your birth certificate, Mr. President? And... Um, and, and that's probably why the story was written, because this story, or it may be why this story is written, it may be why it was included in the canon of Scripture eventually as holy writ, but originally it might have been written to persuade uh, people that God was at work and he worked a great miracle, and David's Moabite heritage was in fact different from what had been prohibited. It was different from the whole Balaam story, the Moabites that, uh, that perverted Israel, but this story is very different. And we can see that clearly when you read the story of Ruth, because in this book, in this first chapter, we've seen a, tr a transformation in the heart of Ruth herself. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So back to this idea, the Moabites lived on the east side of Jordan River and the Israelites crossed over the Jordan to the west to take that territory that the Lord gave them and they, they, they basically took over the, uh, the nations that were there as God had commanded them to do. And they were told that that was their land between the sea and the Jordan River. A few of the tribes stayed on the west side. It was uh, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they took territory in what was Moab and Ammon, and they made it their territory. But nevertheless, there was still always this tension. Those on the east side of, of Jordan were considered to be a little more um, uh, susceptible to the, the gods of the surrounding nations. 
So to traverse the Jordan, to go across and go into Moab would have been seen as a reversal of God's intention. And I've heard preachers say that Eli Melech comes under the wrath of God because he crosses Jordan and goes the opposite direction, walks away from his inheritance and goes to Moab. His sons marry Moabite women and uh, who are worshiping foreign gods and therefore Eli Melech and his sons die. Sounds like it would have some merit, doesn't it? But the scripture doesn't actually say that. As a as a the Bible scholar that you are and that you are becoming, important for you to note that while these theories may have some, you know, they, they may be interesting to think about, we've got to be very careful not to develop a uh, an entire theology based on what may be, uh, uh, you know, your hypothesis, but it's not. It's not specifically there in Scripture. Why is that important? Well, because I don't think the book has anything to do with the judgment of God. I think the entire book from beginning to end is talking about redemption. The entire book gives an expectation, not how they got to where they were, not why they were wicked and why they deserved what happened to them. None of that. It's got everything to do with how God sees them in that position. He sees them in that place and he brings redemption to them. And that is the story of the book of Ruth. And I think from a gospel perspective, it's also good for us now in our 21st century to not be caught up on how we got to where we are. Not that it doesn't merit us to repent before the Lord and turn from our wickedness, right? I mean, we, we do know that that's a, an important part of our, of our Christian faith is to take responsibility for where we have missed the Lord. And it, that is important, but it is more important for us to recognize that having gotten to where we are right now, the story is not over. In fact, a new story is beginning right here. And so the focus of the book of Ruth is not on all the bad stuff that had happened. It is bad. What we focus on is the grief. We focus on Naomi's grief. Naomi is, in a way, the, the, the female Job, isn't she? And, um, and so this, this book has tremendous, uh, uh, this tremendous profit in reading it because what happens to us is we see that God cares about uh, even the women, and, and now you may say, well, what kind of a statement is that, Eric? Well, well, thousands of years ago, in the culture, in the context of this, of this story, women did not have the value that we're grateful our emancipated era now gives. I mean, women have always had value in God's eyes, and that's what this book teaches, that these women were important to God. Even the Moabites was important to God. The, the, the heathen Moabites was important to God, as was Naomi, the victim of terrible tragedy. Her, her husband and her sons die, and she is left without any way to support herself. But God cares about them. And what that says to us is in the, mid, in the middle of a culture that, that objectified women or that made women to be like, like uh, possessions, and, and without a man they had no value, in the middle of that context, God tells a different story. And, and I think that's really important for us. Uh, and it gives us a perspective, again, as we're looking for a king, remember, what kind of king are we looking for? We're looking for the kind of king who gives value, who, 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 who says everyone has an intrinsic value and God cares about every single one of them. In this story, particularly the widows. 
Now, widows and orphans have kind of always been the, you know, the, the proverbial poor, haven't they? They're the ones taken advantage of. They're the ones who don't have, who don't have uh, the leg up on life. They're the ones who, who, who've become the, uh, uh, the victims of tragedy, and people shun them, lest that tragedy spirit should come upon you know, those, the rest of us. In this story, God shows how taking care of the poor benefits an entire nation. Taking care of widows and orphans, essentially, although there's no orphan in the story, but, but taking care of widows benefits the entire society. So again, value system for the for the expected Messiah is that in his dominion, the poor will be taken care of. You say, well, I thought in the dominion of Jesus, there'll be no poor at all. Yes, because they won't be identified as being poor. They'll be welcomed and we will all give each other the same value that Christ has given to us. So within the church, because we're looking for the kingdom of Messiah, not a kingdom on earth, but a kingdom in our hearts right here in this church. One of the core values we're going to learn from this book of, of Ruth is that we need to have compassion on the poor because as we give to them, we actually are giving to the entire society. Remember, it's Naomi's son. I mean, it's Ruth's son, but Naomi gets credit for that at the end of the story. It's Naomi's son's son's son who en ends up becoming the greatest king Israel ever knew. Who defeats the enemies of Israel, expands the territory of Israel. And so it is that we as a church must be careful not to give our attention and our affection to those who appear to have potential. But we must find God's will for everyone. Even those who are down on their luck right, right now, if that makes sense. See? Anyway, but there's a, uh, there's, there's a differentiation in here as well. But take a look at Naomi. Um, she's, she's left with these two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And um, uh, she's in the land of Moab. She hears that God's given bread again in Bethlehem. Now, it, those of you who like the meaning of names, Bethlehem, of course, meaning Bethlehem house lechem bread house of bread um so they left bethlehem because there was no bread in the house of bread and they went to moab uh in search of bread and then everybody dies and all well, the men die and then the women are left and, and then naomi hears this word that there's bread again in the in the house of bread and so she returns i think we can we can sort of draw correlations between uh, people who sort of left church Perhaps because in church there was just no food. They, they, didn't, they just didn't have any connection with God. So they went and they went into the world and they just abandoned the things of faith and abandoned their inheritance and just went and married off into the world and became one with the world and then died out there. But there is always a move of God. I hear Mark going upstairs. He's, he's getting excited up there. Maybe we should all go upstairs, right? Um, God never leaves his people. So if there was a famine in the land, uh, famines always come to an end. 
God brings bread again. I think it's important for us to recognize that whatever season we're going through right now, there will be a turnaround in that season. As it was with Naomi, she heard that there was bread again. There was, the Lord had visited his people. And, and this is the beginning of the, redemp- of the redemption. God visits his people. And uh, God is faithful to his promise. And uh, maybe, um, maybe she's just she's feeling so out of place in a Moabite culture. She just doesn't, she doesn't belong. She's surrounded by, by this, this, this grief. Uh, she sees that her daughters-in-law have no potential with her, and she doesn't know how she's going to feed them. And she doesn't think they'll feed her. She's just, I, I don't want you to have responsibility over me. I, I'm, let me go back home. I have a place. I have family members, perhaps, who will take me in. But you, you stay here. Um, I love the fact that God has gone ahead of them and he's made more than enough provision for them all. Orpah could have had provision too. They didn't know it at the time, except that they knew that God had something. God had visited his people. Uh, I, I, take, uh, I take courage from this, knowing that God will always visit his people. He loves his people. And, uh, and this is why we should never abandon church. Um, because God will come, and uh, and God will bless His His people who continue to seek His face. Uh, perhaps the famine that's mentioned is as a direct result of the fact that Israel has turned away from the Lord. They they don't have a king, but they're all doing whatever's right in their own eyes. And we've read in the previous chapters uh, in the book of Judges that things were were not good. And uh, that seems like they had departed from God, and therefore God was giving them exactly what he said was going to happen. He said, if you, if you abandon our covenant, then these things are going to happen to you. And that's precisely what was going on. Maybe Elimelech and his kids left Bethlehem because they were sick and tired of people abandoning the Lord. And they felt, we'd be better off in Moab than we'd be here with all these so-called believers who don't follow God. I don't know. Anyway, we're not supposed to assume anything except she hears that God is visiting his people. When you hear that God is visiting his people, what does it do to your heart? Yeah. It should make us want to return to him. So she goes out and she's deeply bitter. She says to them, to, her, to the girls, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly is the word chesed. May the Lord show his faithfulness to you. Interesting that Naomi, even in her grief, still has this, this concept of the Lord's blessing. And she's still saying this to her daughters. It makes me love Naomi. I mean, she's a bitter girl, isn't she? She's at the, by the time you get to the end of this chapter, you're thinking, oh, oh, my heart just bleeds for this woman. What an awful, horrible predicament she finds herself in. And yet, even though she's convinced that God has taken up a a charge against her, she nevertheless still wants to pronounce God's blessing on her daughters-in-law. She still says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. There is faith in Naomi's heart. When she hears the Lord has visited his people, she wants to go back to where the Lord is, even though the Lord has taken up a charge against her. Wow. She is not a faithless woman. She's a grieving woman, but she is absolutely not a faithless woman. 
This to me is profound. And I think that you and I, men and women alike, would do well to mimic Naomi in, in times like this. God forbid that we should go through times like this. But should we go through times like this, let us remember that God is faithful, even when the evidence says something different. So she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. God grant that you may find rest. The word rest is actually the word marriage um, in, uh, in the Hebrew. So she's essentially saying, go marry some Moabite men. Go back home and marry these Moabite men. May the Lord grant that you may find that rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, go please marry again. I release you from any, any of your responsibility here to me. Then she kissed them and they lift up their voices and wept and they said, no, 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 we, we don't want to return with you. Uh, we do want to return with you to your people. And uh, Naomi again says, How, what have I got for you? And then she goes into this interesting little story about if I were to have a husband and have children and then my children grow up and then you could marry them, you know, that's not going to happen. I'm already old and so forth. Some of you may be thinking, what in the world is that all about? Well, as it turns out, it's part of, it's part of the, the custom of the old, of the old times. There's, uh, we, we can actually read about it a little bit in the Bible. There are some, some uh, uh, laws that are given with regard to uh, uh, inheritance, inheritance laws, so that the inheritance that God gave to his people would not pass from their hands into the hands of foreigners. And so there was always this opportunity for, uh, for land that had been sold to be bought back again in a year of jubilee when land comes back to the original owners after 50 years and so forth. But there was also, uh, there was also a law called the, um, the Leveret Marriage Law. Uh, Levere was, was a, a, a person who would take the place of a dead relative, typically a brother, uh, who would raise up in his brother's name sons for his brother through his brother's widow. And uh, that may seem odd to us in our in our context, but uh, but it was in, in the in in that culture in that time it was the way things were done. Inheritance was a supremely important thing, and taking care of one's family was a supremely important thing. And remembering your your the departed dead through the name passed on from generation to generation was extremely important to these people. This is how God showed his blessing to a thousand generations for those who love him and trust him. So, so the idea that Naomi is saying is if I were to go and get another husband and then have sons and then those sons uh, grow up, they would be the brothers of the men that you had been married to who have now passed away. And according to the Leverett marriage laws, they would then take you as their wives and they would, they would, through the offspring that comes from the union of the two of you, they would give their name, the name of the dead departed husband to the child and that way it would continue. So that's, that's the cultural context there for you. Um, it sounds rather convoluted, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit complicated, but, uh, but it's, it's actually beautiful because it shows in, in the ancient culture this importance that everybody has. Each person is important and, uh, and their names should continue. Names are important to God and God looks into that cultural context. And behind the scenes, he's saying, I got you covered. I got you covered. Naomi says, I don't know how this could happen. So I don't think it's ever going to happen. So you should just go and marry other men. I release you. But in the background, God is saying, 
I, I, I got you covered. I got a way for this to take place. I've got a full redemption planned. And the book of Ruth then shows us how that redemption comes about. And it is spectacular. What does that tell me? Well, it tells me that even when we don't see that he's working, he's working. He never stops working. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, that both girls originally fight with Naomi and say, no, we don't, want to, we don't want to leave. We want to stay with you. Both girls do. So the story does not make a villain out of Orpah. Even though she's a Moabitess, even though she doesn't go with Naomi in the end, she is released and she is allowed to be released. And so there's no polemic against Orpah. But what we do see is that Ruth, who stays with Naomi, achieves something or, or something happens for her that is so far and above beyond her wildest dreams that it's astonishing. And Orpah doesn't get that same result. So what we see in the first chapter is a, a choice that's made. There is a heart that says, Naomi, I love you and I want to be with you and I want to be loyal to you and I want to help you and take care of you. But, but you know what? You can talk me out of it. Because I see, I'm with you, I see the facts, I see the, I see the way this is playing out, I just don't see, you're right, I, I, and I don't really want to be alone for the rest of my life. And, and so, you know, weighing up the odds, it looks to me like common sense for me to go back to my own family and, and, and be received back in my father's household and then find another husband. So, okay, I love you and I want to be loyal to you, but this, you know what, let's do it this way. And, and although it's not wrong for us, to follow common sense and to make decisions that benefit us, there is a loyalty in this story that God looks at that is a self-sacrificing loyalty, the loyalty that Ruth shows to Naomi in this, that goes a step beyond the common sense response. It's, it's, yeah, it's sacrificial. It's self-denying. It's a, it's a loyalty that is expensive. And that's what chesed is. And before we see God's loyalty demonstrated, we actually see the invitation for Ruth to show this kind of loyalty. It's like God gives her an opportunity. Gives an opportunity to Orpah as well. Orpah doesn't. Ruth does. And on account of that, God says, ha, 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 now I can do some things for you. This idea that, that our loyalty results in God's loyalty to us is a powerful, powerful theological principle. And it is absolutely true. What's important for us to recognize, however, is that the outcome of our loyalty, our choices, Honoring God with the over and above kind of self-sacrificing faith, the kind of faith that says, I will leave my nets, leave my father, leave the boats and follow you, Jesus, into wherever you might go. That kind of chesed, that kind of loyalty that says, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm choosing to go with you, is most often followed by hardship. It's not immediately followed by the outpouring of God's grace and blessing, but God's working in the background. And this kind of loyalty usually comes with an extended period of time where our faith is tested, whether or not we will stay the course. Because loyalty isn't just an idea, it's got to be fleshed out. 
Orpah said she was loyal, and in her heart she was, but her actions showed that there was a greater loyalty that she pursued. Ruth said she was loyal. In her heart, she said she was loyal, but then she had to live out that loyalty at tremendous expense to herself. Granted, in this book, it all takes place over one summer. (laughs) And it's a pretty remarkable story of rapid-fire response from God. In our lives, probably got to wait a little bit longer, like Abraham and Sarah and their 25 years of waiting for God's promise to be revealed. Or Joseph, you know, years and years in prison or a slave in, in the house of Potiphar before eventually he becomes a slave to Pharaoh, even though he's the prime minister, and not actually free, although he's one of the richest men in Egypt, not free to do his own thing. And even then, a long time before his brothers come and kneel before him and he's restored to his family. That loyalty that Joseph shows takes a long time to result in the loyalty of God. And this is a, an important thing as we consider the, the um, as we consider the, the wisdom that's taught through this book, because you've got to take this, this book of Ruth and the way God works a redemption, take that in, in, in combination with the book of Job, since we said that Naomi is kind of like the female Job. Hold them up against each other and look and see that Job has awful atrocities happen to him. And it's a, it's a long time before Job gets any kind of, of, of comfort from the Lord. He doesn't actually even get answers as such from the Lord. He, he gets a conversation with God, but doesn't really answer every question. But the book of Job has, has a strong argument against the, uh, the, the retribution principle, which, which the book of Ruth teaches. The book of Ruth teaches that, the, that the, the, the result of showing loyalty is that you receive loyalty. And that's, that's known as the retribution principle. In, in some ways, you might call it the law of sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap, right? Which is a biblical principle we recognize to be true. If I go out and I sow wheat, I'm not going to you know, raise a crop of corn unless somebody else comes out and sows corn in my field along with the wheat. But wheat that's sown becomes wheat that's grown. And in the same way, whatever it is that we sow, that's what we will reap. But we don't always reap because sometimes the seed fails to germinate or sometimes the seed is eaten up by the birds or or there's a blight or sometimes uh, the crop is destroyed by fire or whatever it might be. So we don't always reap a harvest for what we sow, but know this, that whatever it is that you sow, that is what you reap. So the concept of loyalty and chesed, is very, it's very important we recognize that we can't use this as a formula to say, all right, I showed loyalty, God, let's have your loyalty now. Although you can, because you can appeal to the covenant God. If you're exercising chesed, you're showing kindness out of God's kindness because it's a response to God's covenant in your life, then you can lean into God and believe for him him for that covenant to be fulfilled. But know this. Time and testing. They prove our loyalty. And when God restores and when God repays, it's beautiful, both in Ruth's story and in Job's story. The book of Ecclesiastes is another book of wisdom that teaches us also how to understand and how to comprehend pain, suffering, and so forth, which the book of Ruth also teaches us. So, chesed can be described as extraordinary, risky, restrictive, 
sacrificial, righteous, proper, self-denying, loyal, compassionate devotion. Those are all things that I pick out of the book of Ruth. And, uh, and that's what I want to show to the Lord because it's what I know that he's going to show me. He has already and he's going to show me. And this is what the principle of the kingdom of God is. It's what we're looking for in our king. Did Christ not do this? Did Christ not give up the glories of heaven to come and walk amongst us? To grieve with those who grieve, to mourn with those who mourn. Was Christ not the perfect example who somebody, of somebody who took off the royal robe and put on the pauper's clothes that he might be affected by our pain, inflicted with our pain, that he might be acquainted with our weakness, though without sin? Did Christ not come as the perfect sacrificial lamb who gave himself for us? And has he not been waiting 2,000 years already for the loyalty of God to be demonstrated that he might truly receive that for which he suffered? Does Christ think that God is disloyal because he's taken long to fulfill his promise? Surely not. Know this, that your king awaits the day of the Lord with as much fervor in his heart as you do, and more so even, for he yearns to be united with his bride, us. Do you not know that there is a redeemer who is waiting for us, who has seen to it that anyone who had claim to us no longer has claim to us? Do you not know that his loyalty knows no bounds? Ruth does not know her Redeemer when she says to, to Naomi, your God will be my God. She, she doesn't know Boaz. She doesn't even know that there is a Boaz. Boaz is not God. In our story, Jesus is God. And he's better than Boaz. But Boaz is a pretty awesome dude, I'm just saying. <laughs> Again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Ruth makes this loyal commitment to Naomi. Do you think that you carry Christ in your heart enough to where somebody who's never met Jesus would be willing to stick with you through thick and thin because the God that you serve is so appealing to them? Yeah. Naomi is in the midst of her grief and she blames God for it. And Ruth still says, your God will be my God. You're allowed to tell God how much you misunderstand him. <laughs> You're allowed to say, God, why have you taken up a cause against me? You're allowed to do that. 
but never forget the kindness of God and let that always be the words that come out of your mouth. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Let that be the profession of your faith in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your pain, like Job who says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand before him. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Ruth says to Naomi in chapter 1, I'm not going to obey you. There's tension between the two women because Naomi doesn't want Ruth to come with her. But Ruth is like, mm -mm, I'm not going to obey you. There's a beautiful character development that takes place over the next three chapters where you watch Ruth change. Ruth changes from being the girl who says, I'm in charge here and I am not staying behind. I'm coming with you. To being the girl who says, whatever you say, Naomi, I'll do that. And Naomi goes from being the woman who says, I don't want you with me, to being the woman who makes every effort to make sure that Ruth stays with her. It's a beautiful transformation that takes place in both of these women as the story of redemption flows. You will be changed also as you grow in your faith. You will not stay the same. You will grow as the Lord begins to show his hand in your life. And when it comes, the Lord will bring it swiftly. When the Lord gets involved in our lives, beautiful things happen more than we can expect. And I charge you to hold fast. But to know this, that God is able to work with your character flaws. What he's looking for is not a perfect person. But he's looking for your confession of faith. So believe in him, my friends. And when you hear that the Lord is moving, return there to where the Lord is moving. Trust Him. Go back to the Scripture. Return to the house of bread. Trust the Lord, for He is good. I'm going to sing the blessing over you today, and then we'll release you. Okay. Sound good. Um, I'm going to grab my guitar, and I'm going to sing. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to just sit there with your hands out like this. As if you're going to receive from the Lord. Okay. shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace
face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. Thank you. 